0: Starting tonight, a brand new study. This time, of course, we're going through the book of Mark. It also coincides with what you're doing in your BSF classes, and I think that's a win. That Sunday morning, Sunday night, and throughout the week, during the month of March, we're going to be looking together at this very important and very intriguing book. I want to introduce, thank you, Tom. I want to introduce this book to you, uh, again, with a little video summary. This is from BibleProject.com. And guys, if you just go ahead and play this, this will give you a good overall summary. You don't need to take any notes on this. Just put your note sheet down, put your pen down, put your Bible down, and just sit back and watch this and try to absorb what they're showing you and what they're telling you as a very good summary of the book of Mark.
1: The Gospel According to Mark it's one of the first accounts of the life of Jesus and our earliest historical traditions link this book to a Christian scribe named Mark, or John Mark. He was a co-worker with Paul and a close partner with Peter. And in fact, an ancient church historian named Papias, he recalls that Mark had collected all of the eyewitness accounts and memories of Peter and then shaped them into this account. But Mark didn't just randomly throw the pieces together, he's carefully designed this story of Jesus. In the first line of the book, Mark makes this claim about Jesus. It's the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now what's interesting is that this is the only time Mark is going to tell you what he thinks. For the rest of the book, he's going to influence you by simply putting Jesus' actions and words in front of you and showing you how other people react to him. Now, Marks designed the story of Jesus as a drama with three acts. The first one set in Galilee, the third one is set in Jerusalem, and the second act shows Jesus on the way from one place to the other. And each of the acts focuses on repeated theme. So, in Act 1, everybody's blown away by Jesus and they are wondering who is this Jesus? In Act 2, it is the disciples who are struggling to understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And then in Act 3, we watch the surprising paradox of how Jesus becomes the messianic king. Let's just dive in and you'll see how it unfolds. After the opening line, Mark begins with a quotation from the ancient prophets Isaiah and Malachi who said that God would send a messenger to Israel to prepare them for when God would show up himself to rescue his people and become their king. And Mark introduces John the Baptist as that messenger. And then right when you expect God to show up personally, Mark introduces Jesus. And as he comes onto the scene, the heavens open, God's spirit descends on Jesus and God says, You are my beloved son. After this, Mark places in front of us a summary of Jesus' core message. He went about Galilee announcing the good news that God's kingdom has come near. Jesus is carrying forward the story from the Old Testament scriptures about God's rescue operation for his world. Through Jesus, God is restoring his reign over the world by confronting and defeating evil and its hold on people's lives. And then, by inviting them to live under his reign by following Jesus. From here, Mark's given us a big block of stories showing us Jesus' power as he brings God's kingdom. He goes about healing people whose bodies are sick or broken or under the oppression of dark spiritual powers. And Jesus even does something that for Jewish people only God has the right to do. He forgives people's sins. And Jesus' actions here produce lots of different responses. So, some people follow him and become his disciples. Other people don't know what to think and still others reject him completely, especially Israel's leaders who accuse him of blaspheming God and being empowered by evil. But Jesus isn't surprised by these responses, in fact, he draws attention to it. In chapter 4, Mark has collected many of Jesus' parables about the hidden, mysterious nature of God's kingdom. And Jesus says that his message is like seed falling on different types of soil. Some are receptive, some are not. Or it's like a mustard seed that's very tiny, it seems insignificant, but then it grows huge and surprises everyone. Jesus' point is that he really is the Messiah bringing God's kingdom, but it doesn't look like what anybody expected. And this growing confusion about Jesus among the crowds is connected to a key idea, Mark emphasizes at the end of Act 1, that even among Jesus' disciples there's confusion. Even they are struggling to grasp who Jesus really is and that brings us to Act 2. It begins with a crucial conversation. Jesus takes the disciples aside and he asks, Who do you all say that I am? And Peter speaks up, saying, You're the Messiah. But it becomes clear that for Peter, this means that Jesus is a victorious military king from the line of David who will rescue Israel from the Romans. But for Jesus to be the Messiah means that he's the suffering servant king of Isaiah 53, who will bring God's rule by giving up his life in Jerusalem. And the disciples, they don't get it. They think following King Jesus is going to mean fame and status and importance. And Jesus makes it clear that following him is actually like dying, like carrying your own cross. It means rejecting violence and pride and selfishness and giving one's life out for others in acts of service and love. He has the same conversation with them two more times and it all culminates in Jesus' important statement that the Son of Man did not come to be served but to become a servant and give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples still don't get it. They respond in confusion and fear. And so, here in Act 2, Mark has placed another key story that echoes the book's introduction. Jesus takes three of His disciples up to a mountain and He's suddenly transformed. He's radiating with light and glory and a cloud envelops them. Now, this is just like the glory of the God of Israel that showed up long ago on Mount Sinai. And then the two prophets who stood in God's presence on Mount Sinai, Moses and Elijah, they appear next to Jesus as God announces again, This is my beloved Son. Now, by placing this story in the middle of all these conversations in Act 2, Mark is making an astounding claim that Jesus, God's son, is the physical embodiment of God's own glory. And in Jesus, the glorious God of Israel is going to become king by suffering and dying for the sins of his own people it's a puzzling claim that confuses and scares the disciples as they leave the mountain. Which brings us to Act 3. Jesus makes a very public royal entry into Jerusalem for Passover. People are hailing him as the Messiah. Then he enters into the temple courtyard and he asserts his royal authority by running out the thieves and crooks and stopping the sacrificial system. Then this kicks off a whole week of Jesus debating and confronting the leaders of Israel, condemning their hypocrisy and so they set in motion a plan to have him And Jesus warns his disciples, predicting that Jerusalem and its temple will be destroyed within a generation and his disciples will be persecuted just like him until he returns one day to bring God's kingdom fully over the world. And it all leads up to the final night. Jesus has his last Passover meal with the disciples, a symbolic meal that told the story of Israel's liberation from slavery through the death of the Passover lamb. And Jesus takes these symbols and he gives them new meaning. They point to the liberation from sin and death that will happen through the death of the suffering servant Messiah. From here, the story rushes forward to Jesus's arrest, his trial before Israel's priests and the Roman governor Pilate, all resulting in Jesus's crucifixion. And it culminates in a key scene that matches the important scenes from Acts 1 and 2. Except this time, it's darkness that descends, not a cloud. And instead of the divine voice from heaven, it's Jesus's voice crying out before he dies. And then most surprising is that it's a Roman soldier who sees Jesus die, who grasps and then announces who Jesus is. This man was the Son of God. He's the first person in the story to recognize the story's shocking claim about Jesus' identity, that it's the crucified Son of God who's the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, who died for his friends and for his enemies. After this, Jesus' body is placed in a tomb. And on the first day of the new week, two women from his disciples come to the tomb and they discover that the tomb is empty, the stones rolled away. And an angelic man informs them that Jesus isn't here, that he's risen from the dead. And so he orders them to go and tell this good news to the other disciples that Jesus is alive, that he'll meet them back up in Galilee. And the women, they're freaked out. Mark says that they fled from the tomb in terror, telling no one, for they were afraid. And that's how the book ends, with Jesus' disciples showing the same kind of fear and confusion that concluded Acts 2 and 1. Now, if you look in your Bible, you'll see that the Gospel of Mark has more to its ending where Jesus appears, he speaks to his disciples, but there's also a note there telling you that that ending is not part of the original book, that it's only found in later less reliable manuscripts. Now, it's possible that the original ending got lost or that Mark actually never finished writing his account, but it's more likely that this abrupt ending is intentional to make a point. The entire story has focused on the shocking claim that puzzled Jesus' disciples from beginning to end, that it's the suffering, crucified, and risen Jesus who's the Messiah, the Son of God. That God's love and upside-down kingdom were revealed as Jesus died for the sins of the world. And so this story ends without closure and it forces you, the reader, to grapple with this very strange and scandalous claim about Jesus. And are you going to run away like the women? Or are you going to recognize Jesus as your king and go and tell the good news? And only you can answer that question. And that's what the Gospel of Mark is all about.
0: Okay, we can go home. <laughs> I a, lot, a lot of work in that presentation. Uh, the folks who make that just do an excellent job, and uh, I, I'm just uh, envious sometimes that I don't have that kind of a talent to draw that stuff out and put all that together. Dr. Paul Reese has said, this is a great statement, listen to it. Dr. Paul Reese has said, the gospel is neither a discussion nor debate, nor debate. it is an announcement. When you come to the gospels, it's not a discussion, it's not a debate. He says, it really is an announcement. And Mark made no, wasted no time making the announcement. Open your Bibles, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What an announcement. Here's the beginning of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. In other words, John was saying, if if you're not sure what I'm going to be writing about, if you're not sure what this book is about, let me explain it to you. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's very interesting to study how the four gospel writers opened their or began their books. Matthew, of course, the first gospel in our Bibles, in our New Testament, Matthew was writing primarily to Jewish readers. So he opened his book with a genealogy, this long genealogy. Uh, and after the reason he did that, he had to prove to his Jewish readers that Jesus Christ is the rightful Heir to David's throne. Matthew repeatedly shows us how Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. He's writing to Jews, and so that's why he begins his gospel the way he does. Trying to prove Jesus is the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. That's Matthew. Luke, Luke was a physician, and Luke was also a Gentile. A Gentile follower of Jesus Christ. That is, he was a non-Jew. So Luke, as he was writing for other Greeks or other Gentile readers of the gospel, he focused on careful research. And he tells us at the beginning of the gospel, others have have started writing these stories about Jesus. I thought it would be good to research, thoroughly research, and, and write out the story of Jesus. So Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. I mean, he really did the research. He takes the story of Jesus all the way back to Adam to show that Jesus is God's Son, but also the Son of Man. John. John's Gospel is different from the other three. Uh, in fact, the first three Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels, and the word synop- synoptic means to see alike. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all see the story of Jesus alike. They, tell, they talk about similar things John's gospel is different. John is writing to show that Jesus was not just a good teacher. He was not just a miracle worker, but he is the eternal Son of God. And John's genealogy goes all the way back to the beginning of time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so John is trying to show that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, the only one qualified to offer us eternal life, And John's gospel is the most uh, theological gospel of the four. But then we have Mark. Mark wrote to Gentile believers, listen to this, Gentile believers who lived in Rome. Get this in your mind. Mark was writing to Gentile believers who lived in Rome. And his goal was to show Jesus as God's servant sent to minister to the suffering people and, and to die for the sins of the world. Mark's gospel doesn't have a genealogy. After all, if you're going to present Jesus as a servant, why would you worry about his pedigree? His family history doesn't mean a whole lot if you're presenting Jesus as a servant. And Mark gives us this key verse, chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And here's... I don't think there's a blank to fill in here, but if it's not on your notes, you might want to write it on the column somewhere. Uh, Mark's gospel, the emphasis in Mark's gospel is more on what Jesus did rather than what Jesus said. I'll come back to that in a few moments, but let me state it again. In Mark's gospel, the emphasis is more on what Jesus did rather than on what Jesus said. So let me introduce Mark's gospel to you tonight by first of all talking about the author, And then we'll talk about the book and kind of the map. And if we have time, we'll talk about some things to look for as you're reading through the gospel this month. Let me start off by talking about the author because it is an intriguing story, the author of this gospel. First of all, look on your notes. Number one, there is no direct internal evidence of authorship. In other words, the Bible doesn't tell us, the gospel doesn't tell us who wrote it. But the unanimous testimony of the early church is that the gospel was written by John Mark. John Mark. Now, number two, it's interesting that John Mark, or Mark, was not one of the apostles. Now, the reason that's important, or the reason that's significant, is because most of the New Testament Books, not all of them, but most of the New Testament books were written by apostles. In fact, apostolic authority was one of the criteria for including a book in the New Testament. How did these books get chosen to be in the New Testament? One of the ways that they were chosen, one of the criteria is, was the book written by an apostle? If the book book was not written by an apostle, the second step or the second criteria was, is there apostolic authority connected to the book? In other words, it wasn't necessarily written by an apostle, but it was written by somebody who knew an apostle. And that's the case for Mark. Let me tell you the story. Number three, in AD 140, church historian Papias quoted an even earlier source that said, Mark was a close associate of the apostle Peter. Mark was a close associate of the apostle Peter. Through Peter's preaching and personal discussions, Mark learned a lot about Jesus and he accurately preserved the material that is in this gospel now it's it's very possible and i think even likely that the apostle peter was the one who led mark to faith in christ that's how close the association was between john mark and peter and i base that on scripture look with me go up to the right find the book of first peter chapter 5 first peter chapter 5 verse 13 First Peter chapter 5, verse 13, notice how this book ends. I'm going to come to the last couple of verses, verse 13. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, as does my son Mark. When Peter's talking about his son, he's not talking about his physical son, but he's talking more than likely about his spiritual son, his son in the faith. I really believe that Mark was led to faith in Christ by the Apostle Peter. Which lends credence to the idea that Mark got a lot of the information about Jesus from his close association with the Apostle Peter. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Mark's family. Mark's mother was an influential and it is believed a wealthy woman in Jerusalem Her house served as a meeting place for believers in the early days of the church. So he grew up in a home where where this new thing called Christianity was flourishing. He grew up in a home where this new thing called Christianity was coming to life. He grew up in a home where he was listening to stories about Jesus of Nazareth. Let me show you this in Scripture. Uh, Look with me at Acts chapter 12 verse 12. Acts 12, verse 12. Here's the story in Acts 12. Peter is put in prison. Again, Close associate of Mark. Peter is put in prison by Herod, arrested and put in prison by Herod. The church is praying for Peter's release. And look what we read beginning, let's say, uh, in verse 11. Uh, this is after Peter was, was led out of prison by the angel. It says in verse 11, now, uh, Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When, they had, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. So when the church was gathering to pray for the release of the Apostle Peter from prison, whose house were they gathering in? They were gathering in the house of John Mark, specifically his mother's house. And it says a lot of people were there, so it probably was a pretty large house. It's it's very likely that John Mark grew up in a home where his mom was well-known in Jerusalem, at least in Christian circles, well-known in Jerusalem, probably had a large house indicating perhaps a wealthy woman And she used her house as a meeting place in the early days, apparently, for the the early church. Now, it says in verse 12, it refers to John and Mark. Let me clarify that a little bit, why he sometimes is called John Mark, why some other times he's called John or Mark. John was his Jewish name. Mark was his Roman name. So that's why you have these two names he sometimes goes by. If you place him in this time frame, it's very likely that, as far as age-wise, John Mark or Mark was probably around a teenager during the time of Jesus, living in Jerusalem. So he certainly was aware of Jesus. He certainly probably saw Jesus, encountered Jesus, met Jesus, maybe listened to some of the things that he said. Uh, In fact, this is a little interesting tidbit. It may be, can't prove this, but I, I, I think it makes sense. It may be that Mark was the young man who ran away naked when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Say, so what in the world are you talking about? Let me show you again in Scripture. Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Verse 50. This is the account of Jesus being arrested. It says, Then everyone deserted him and fled when he was arrested. Verse 51, A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Notice it refers to this young man. This young man who has this... Interest in Jesus, in following Jesus. He knows about Jesus. It's in Jerusalem. Very likely, very possible at least, that the reason he's dressed the way he is with so little is because he was at his house in Jerusalem. When he hears about what's going on, he runs to find out about it. He runs to see it for himself. Not fully dressed. And, and then the story unfolds. So we don't know for sure that that's John Mark but it's, it's uh, certainly at least possible. My point is simply this. Uh, he definitely grew up around the early church. He, he had connections with believers in the early church. Uh, another connection is this to the early church. Number five, Mark's cousin was Barnabas. Put that on your notes. Mark's cousin was Barnabas, who was a well-known figure in the early church. Barnabas, in the early chapters of Acts, Is one of the leaders in the New Testament church. So, again, just another indication that the author of the Gospel of Mark was well connected uh, to the leaders and the early leaders of the church. Number six, uh, Mark went with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Now, this is where I think the story gets very interesting. Uh, Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. If you'd go there. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, notice he's listed first because he's one of the leaders in the church. And this is John Mark's cousin. In the early church there at Antioch were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. Notice what the next part of that verse says. John was with them as their helper. So John, because he's cousins with Barnabas, John is also on this first missionary journey. On the first missionary journey, we always talk about Paul and Barnabas. And what we don't realize many times is that they took a helper along, a young man named John or Mark. But it didn't work out real well. We don't know why, but Mark decided to go home. Have you ever gotten homesick? I mean, really, have you ever gotten homesick? When I moved to Fort Worth, Texas, Lisa and I moved to Fort Worth, Texas after... After we got married and, and we went to Fort Worth to, to go to seminary, for the first time in my life, I experienced homesickness. I mean, I was ready to go home. I remember sitting in, in the out, at, a, at an outdoor table there at the mall in Fort Worth. We were eating lunch, and I missed my home so badly, and I wanted so badly just to get in that car and drive back to Tennessee. I was homesick. Now, I'm not sure if that's what happened with John Mark, but whether he was homesick or fearful or ill, we're not sure. But let's just read verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. John left them for whatever reason to go back home. Now, that's the first missionary journey. On the second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark along. Here's how it unfolded in chapter 15. Go to chapter 15, verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas thought, great, I'll go get John Mark and we'll go do it. Verse 36 Or verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. Translation, Paul said, he ain't going. But he's my cousin. He's a good young man. I know he left us I, I know he, he kind of deserted us I get that but you know he, he'd never been away from home before and, he, and Paul said he's not going and Barnabas yeah, but, but he needs to go we need to help him he's, a, he's got a good future he's, he's not going and then Barnabas got mad and said oh yeah he is you're not the boss of this thing he's going to go Who says it? I say he's going to go. Well, I'm saying he's not going to go. You say, preacher, it didn't really happen that way. Look at the text. Look at the text. Verse 38. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. They had such a sharp disagreement that they split up. Amazing. Now, here's the part of the story you may not know. About a dozen years later, about 12 years later, Mark makes a reappearance on the biblical scene. About a dozen years later, he suddenly, his name appears in a letter that Paul writes that we call Colossians. And it appears that John Mark is actually with Paul in prison in Rome. He's not imprisoned. It seems that he has gone there to visit Paul. in prison. Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Parentheses, you have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Paul, Paul, you know why Paul put that parenthesis there? Because when he put John Mark, Paul knew that people in Colossians knew the story and they would be reluctant to take him in and let him be part of what's going on. Paul says, listen, listen, listen. He's, I, you've heard some things, but, but things have straightened out and, and I want you to receive him. He's, he's not what he used to be, so I want you to receive him. Now, if you'd go over to... Uh, Philemon, the book of Philemon, the little book of Philemon, uh, verse 24. It's right before the book of Hebrews. Little book of Philemon. Philemon was written the same time period that Colossians was written while Paul was in prison. And it says in verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, and he calls them my fellow workers. So here he's referring to Mark as one of his fellow workers. So in those 12 years, something has happened and they have been reconciled. And then, notice on your notes there, about five years later, Paul is once again imprisoned in Rome. Uh, there were at least two imprisonments of Paul. Uh, the first one was more of a house arrest type thing, and he eventually got out of that and went and did ministry again. This l- next imprisonment, this last imprisonment, was in the Mamertine uh, prison. It was—it's a dungeon in Rome. I've actually been in that dungeon, and it's dark and it's damp. And and when you're in that dungeon, you imagining Paul languishing there at the end of his life, and he's writing his last letter—the last letter that's in our Bibles. Uh, Second Timothy. And in his last letter, some of his last words before he's executed in Rome. Paul writes this in Second Timothy chapter four, verse eleven. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Isn't that beautiful. Paul, in his last days before he dies, he says, Listen, Timothy, when you come to see me, bring Mark with you. He's profitable to me in my ministry. Before I die, I would like to see him. I want to be encouraged by him. If there's something about that young man, he's profitable to my ministry. Now, I took the time to go through all of that because I want you to understand who wrote this book we call The Gospel of Mark. Mark's story is evidence that God in His grace can use us even when we have failed Him. One failure in life does not mean the end of your usefulness. Mark, young in life, young in faith, was not as committed as Mark, the one who wrote the gospel story later on. It's a beautiful story of how his life was transformed and how he focused, how John Mark began to really get focused on the gospel and the power of the gospel. Now, let me talk to you. Well, let me stop there. It occurred to me, I never let you all ask questions. I just talk and talk and talk and talk. Uh, do you have any questions about what we've talked about so far? All right. Let's talk about some special features of the book. Then, uh, special features of the book. I've got several here, and uh, six, I believe. Uh, number one, Mark was was the first gospel written, probably uh, written around AD fifty five to sixty five. Uh, AD fifty five to sixty five. It was Mark was the first gospel written. And the reason I said probably is because. Whenever you're trying to date the New Testament books, uh, it really is is a kind of a, a struggle to nail some dates down. Uh, now, I don't mean that Mark was the first New Testament book written. Paul's some of Paul's letters were uh, written before Mark. Uh, Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians are examples. Of some of the earliest New Testament writings. But as far as the Gospels are concerned, Mark was probably written first. Though some make a case that Matthew was actually written first. I believe Mark was the first gospel written. All right? Number two. Oh, oh by the way, let me, let me throw this in here. Matt, I told you earlier that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. They're called synoptic gospels because they see things very similarly. Someone did a mathematical comparison. There's no blank here, but you might want to write this down in a column there someone did a mathematical comparison and, and it showed that 91% of Mark's gospel is found in Matthew and 53% of Mark is found in Luke. When you compare the gospels, 91% of what you see in, in Mark, you'll see in Matthew and 53% of what you see in Mark, you'll see in Luke. And um, it's, it, I think that's one of the evidences that Mark was probably written first. First. Alright, so number two, the Old Testament begins with, I, I like this, the Old Testament begins with men made in the image of God, and the New Testament begins with God in the image of man in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament pointed, of course, towards the Messiah to come. Mark begins his gospel again in verse one. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, Genesis, starting in Genesis and through the Old Testament, they kept pointing towards the Messiah to come. And then when the Gospels opened up, they say, here he is. Here is the disciple long promised. Number three, Mark was written to encourage Christians in Rome and to prove that Jesus is the Messiah sent from God. Write that down. Mark was written to encourage Christians in Rome and to prove that Jesus is the Messiah sent from God. Now, the reason that's important, listen to this, the reason that's important is because this book was written for the benefit of those who lived outside of the area that Jesus lived in and ministered in. So Mark is writing a letter to people who didn't live in Israel. He's writing a letter to people who didn't see the the experience or didn't see the miracles Jesus performed. They didn't hear the teachings of Jesus. They didn't live in that land. They lived outside of that land. They lived in Rome. And so, Mark is writing to that group of Gentiles, Jewish uh, Gentile believers, to help them understand who Jesus is and that the kingdom of God has come. It may be, and likely is, that one of the reasons Mark wrote his gospel was to prepare those believers in Rome for the persecution that was coming. Nero in AD 64 set Rome on fire, he blamed the Christians for the fire, and then used that as a cover. For executing or persecuting the Christians. It was not uncommon in the days of Emperor Nero to have a garden party and to to cover the Christians in tar and set them on fire and use them as torches for his garden parties. That's how much Christians were hated in that time. It was not uncommon for Nero to bring Christians into the Roman uh, uh, Colosseum and let the lions attack them and watch and cheer as the Christians were killed by the lions. It was not uncommon for Christians in that day uh, to be mistreated and persecuted in incredible ways. Sometimes they were sewn into the skins of animals and then fed to the lions. So Mark was writing in that environment. He was writing in a time where Christians were being persecuted by Rome, specifically by Nero in Rome. He was perhaps writing in a time, either right before or right after, both Peter and Paul were executed in Rome by Nero. Both Peter and Paul. Again, Peter being a very close associate, close friend of Mark. Writing to these Roman believers who are witnessing Christians being attacked, they're witnessing Christians being uh, being killed, they're witnessing the execution of Paul and Peter, writing at a time like that, he writes this gospel called Mark to say, Jesus was not just a Savior, He was a suffering Savior. Jesus was not just a servant, He was a suffering servant. Making the case that what they were experiencing is what Jesus had experienced as well, preparing them for what was to come. Now, number four. Uh, number four, you might want to put a star beside this one, an asterisk or something. It's such an important part, uh, a point. Number four. Mark is the shortest of the four gospels, but it is action-packed. Those are the two words. It is the shortest, but it is action-packed. Packed. it's interesting that when you come to the gospel of mark the lord's actions rather than his words are given the most attention especially the miracles that jesus performed that demonstrated his divinity the rapid pace of the book can be seen in the frequent use of a greek word euthos and it's translated in our scripture straightway or immediately or at once you see it again and again throughout Mark. I remember in seminary the professor saying, "Mark is like Mark was always on the run. One thing is mentioned, then the next thing is mentioned, then the next thing is mentioned, then the next thing is mentioned, and it's it's always immediately and then straight away and immediately and right after and immediately. Let me show you this in scripture. Go go with me to the just the first chapter of Mark. I noticed this the other day when uh, when we were I was reading the first chapter. Just how action-packed it is, even in the very first chapter. Mark chapter 1, verse, um, verse 12. Here's that word "euthus" in the Greek language. At once, that's the Greek word "euthus." At once, the Spirit sent him out into the desert. This is after his baptism. At once, right after his baptism. The Spirit sent him out into the desert and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. Verse 18. At once they left their nets and followed him. Verse 20. Without delay he called them and they left their father Zebedee and the boat and in the hired hands and followed him. Verse 27. The people were... were all so amazed that they ask each other, What is this? A new teaching, and with authority. He, he even gives orders to the evil spirits, and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Uh, the best way I can summarize it is this Jesus was on the move in the book of Mark. Number five. We'll get through this and then we'll stop. Number five. Mark presents a rapid succession of powerful pictures of Jesus in action. His true identity is revealed in, in Mark by what he does, not by what he says. That's uh, interesting, you might want to write this down uh, just there in the column there. There are 18 miracles in Mark, 18 miracle stories that Mark tells us about, and only four parables. 18 miracles, but only four parables. Mark is interested in telling us what Jesus did rather than what Jesus said. He records more miracles than any other gospel. Mark, get that, write that down. Mark records more miracles than any other gospel. Again, part of that is because of his audience, a Roman audience. The Romans were more concerned with action, they were more concerned with what have you done? And so he writes about what Jesus did and he shows his power but again because the romans are concerned with power he shows the lord's power as he talks about all the miracles that he performed that there is one more powerful than nero there is one more powerful than the roman government there is one more powerful than the mighty army of rome and that is the lord jesus christ because look at the miracles he performed so mark talks about more miracles than any other of the gospel writers. And finally, number six, and we'll stop here, uh, number six, Mark omits the birth of Jesus, he he begins with John the Baptist, preaching and, and quickly takes us into the public ministry of Jesus. Mark omits the birth of Jesus and he just gets started, just jumps in, talking about what Jesus did. All right? Now, I wish we had more time, but what we'll do next week, Lord willing, is start on this side. So keep these notes. And uh, here's can I just ask you to do something as you're reading the Gospel of Mark? Use this little map and try to look up some of the places you're reading about. It will make a difference. It will help you have a better perspective. Any questions before we leave? All right, let me pray with you. Lord, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes this week as we spend time each morning or each evening or whenever it is as we read another chapter. I pray that you'd give us a deeper appreciation for the Lord Jesus. I pray that you'd open our eyes and you'd help us to see what we've never seen before, to understand what is beyond our human reasoning. And may you teach us by your Spirit. And God, I pray that that the Gospel of Mark will come alive for us as we look at the story recorded by a man who walked away from the first missionary journey. Remind us that though we are not perfect, you can still use us too. Christ, name I pray. Amen.